Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Dr. Giles Yo Choose the Fat with me, Dr. Giles Yo, the man in the title. I'm a geneticist at the University of Cambridge. Were I ever to find the courage to sit in the mastermind chair, my specialist subject would be the genetics of appetite control. Given I'm personally interested in genes and body weight, I'm always particularly fascinated by the connection between what we eat and how we exercise and what effect that has on losing or gaining weight. So helping me understand more is former endurance athlete, Alex Hutchinson. There's also a lot of research showing that exercise helps improve the match between appetite and energy needs. So people who are physically active, how much they eat is linked to how much energy they're burning. Whereas people who are totally sedentary, it becomes totally decoupled. So their appetite no longer tells them to stop. Being physically active is crucial to help make sure that your appetite mechanism is giving you the right signals. Alex has a PhD in physics, as well as a master's in journalism. He was an elite distance runner with the Canadian national team and has since gone on to become a science journalist. His New York Times bestselling book, Endure, is a bestseller for good reason. It explores individual human potential and what defines our psychological and physical limits. Listen, I'll put my hands up and say that I had an ulterior motive in asking Alex to join me on the podcast. We actually went to the University of Cambridge together. In fact, we played in the band Casa del Funk. Alex was a killer alto sax player. I played at my own wedding. I know, don't at me. And we had this incredible 10-course Chinese banquet. Now, I literally haven't seen Alex in 20 years, but my enduring memory is of him taking a huge takeaway bag filled with lobster and giant shrimp from my wedding and then leaving it in the parking lot. So I obviously had to remind him of that story in case he'd forgotten. That is the, the greatest shame I can, I can possibly imagine because I am a leftover guy. I am the guy... I, you know, at, at student functions, I'd chat to the caterers and I'd say, what's going to happen to the, all these like hors d'oeuvres that are just sitting on the table? And they're like, oh, we'll throw them out. It's like, dude, I will take this foil tray of leftovers home and I will eat it. I will live on it for a week. Uh, I was economical and I was also hungry and I, I, I loved good food. So I apologize in shame for leaving the greatest leftovers that I could have had. And I have the, the fondest memories of you belting it out at your own wedding. That was one of the highlights of my of my time in Cambridge. And and by the way, I just want to point out we weren't being cheap. My wife asked me to 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 do it because she thought it was nice before any of you start making comments. But in true catch-up moment, so I knew you. Well, I, I knew a couple of things. I knew you were a PhD student. I also knew you were Cambridge Blue at the time. So in other words, he ran for uh, Cambridge and I knew you were a 1500 and, and a miler. All this was information which, which I knew. But can you just tell me 
What happened? What happened after that in terms of your athletic career and how it led to Endure? Yeah, it was. It, it's a long way from there to here. Uh, it was not a straight road. I did my PhD in physics. I was not sure what I wanted to do, so I kind of meandered around for a few years after that. I wanted to focus on running. I wanted to see if I could make the Olympics, and so that was leading up to the 2004 Olympics. Running was the most important thing in my life. I continued in physics. I postdoc'd, but it wasn't quite feeling it. I didn't make the Olympics in 2004. Mm. I was looking for something else to, to uh, something that I could be passionate about in a way that, for whatever reason, physics wasn't doing it for me. Mm. So I went to journalism school into uh, to to do a master's in journalism oh. in 2004. Uh, that was one year, and then I worked as a newspaper reporter for a year, and then I became a freelancer in 2006. And at that point, a freelancer means you have no job, you 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 eat what you kill, and so. In keeping with the reason I'd switched careers, I wanted to start writing about things that I was really passionate about. And I was really passionate about running and about endurance. So I started writing about running. But I also was trying to bring in, hey, I, you know, I have a PhD in physics. Look at me. I, 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 I'm looking for any competitive advantage as a freelance journalist. So I started writing about the science of running. Ah. And, 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 you know, not just who won the race, but why one person won the race and another person didn't. Both because it was an interesting thing to write about. And it was a sort of form of psychoanalysis for me in trying to understand my own running career and all the times when the results of a race didn't necessarily follow from just the, the simple physiology. So I wanted to understand more about what determines the nature of our limits. And that, that ended up being a sort of 10-year journey that culminated in a book that came out a few years ago called Endure. So my interest in this whole thing, actually, it's, it's a slightly older story. I like cycling. So my, my sports of choice, okay, look, for those of you who can't see Alex, you can Google him. Alex looks like an athlete. He's, he's got, you know, right angle jaws. You know, he looks, he, he looks like a, an athlete. When I say I like cycling, my head is so round, you can calculate pi from it, right? So, so this, is, this, is, this is not, I'm not an athlete, but I like cycling. It's my, it's my sport of choice. So I did one of these crazy European sportives with a friend. And the, the particular ride I did was called La Mamotte. And it's a bit of a crazy one because it goes over all the famous passes a lot of the famous passes in one day, 5,000 meters of vertical climbing in 110 miles. And so I trained for it as, as, as far as you could in Cambridge. And if you remember, Cambridge is very flat. Flat. <laughs> so, so, so A, there was a training issue. But anyway, so, so we got there. My, my mate and I got there. And then we started going. Now, I had a fueling. And this is where we're going to come in. I had a fueling strategy for the day. But I realized that it was difficult to eat while you were climbing, and it was difficult to eat when you were going downhill very quickly on a bicycle. But the whole race was either climbing or going downhill. So I had finished probably 50 miles in a day. We had already done one major pass. We'd probably already done 2,000 meters of climbing, okay? It was a long day. It was hot. This is, this is, this is hot. And all I'd had, I'd, carbo, I'd eaten the biggest plate of pasta I'd ever had in my life the night before. And I'd eaten only one energy bar when I, when I could. But so this was 50 miles in. I was on my way up. It was 30 degrees Celsius. And I started getting the awful feeling in cycle riding. It's called the knock. I believe runners call it the wall. But it was the same thing. So I had these stupid gel pouches. Okay, which is pure sugar. And in fact, I squeezed one, the first one miss and actually went down my jersey. So wonderful. So not only that, I was now sticky for the rest of the day. The second one went in, but it just made me feel nauseous. So here's the interesting thing. I teach first-year preclinical medics biochemistry, including the biochemistry of all of the intermediary metabolism. Okay, so I sort of kind of understand, sort of kind of the biochemistry behind it. 
But clearly I felt starving to death. But looking down, I can guarantee you, I still have loads of energy stores on me. So what the hell happened to me? What was my error? What is this wall? What is this knock? How did I get there? And how come I can't use the fat on me? Why do I feel so hungry? Yeah, this is the the great question that marathoners contemplate at mile 20 uh, of, of pretty much every, every marathon. It's like, <laughs> I know I have the calories. Why can't I do it? So just to put some numbers on it, mm. typical person probably has 50,000 to 100,000 calories of fat just sort of hanging around various parts of their body. You can also store ballpark, let's say 2,500 calories of carbohydrate if you do it right. If you carbo load, you okay. had your pasta meal, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking, you know, 20 to 50 times more fat than carbohydrate. The problem is not one of how much you've got. It's how quickly can you access it? Because to use different kinds of fuel requires a different set of metabolic reactions. And so if you go out for a nice leisurely walk, you will be burning mostly fat and you will not run out of fuel if, for the most part because you've got plenty of fat. Mm. But anytime you're doing something intense and climbing 5,000 meters of Alps counts as intense, okay. <laughs> no matter how you slice it, even if you're not going super fast, yeah. uh, going up that mountain is intense. You need a fire that burns hotter than fat can burn under most circumstances. So you're, you're forced to rely more on carbohydrates. The, the harder you're going, the more you need carbohydrates. And carbohydrates will run out after about 90 minutes, give or take various circumstances. And then you may, you may have all the fat in the world, but if you can't access it enough to keep yourself pedaling, you're running low on fuel. And it's not as simple. It's not like a car where the gas tank is empty and you just stop. But all sorts of signals start mm. coming up to your brain and to your muscles. You, you feel awful for one thing. You feel Yeah, and that's that's your, you know, a very complex d defense system telling you stop, we do not have enough fuel. And and eventually, you know, it gets worse and worse and again if you try and keep going and if you don't refuel. But bottom line that's what's happening is it's not that you didn't have enough calories, it's that you didn't have enough accessible calories that you could burn quickly enough to sustain the the ridiculous thing you were trying to do. And, and ridiculous thing I was trying. It is ridiculous. My, you know, and not only that, I got sunburned. I, I put suntan lotion all over myself, except my head. Now I, I have no like like um, my eminent guest here. I have no hair, and and cycle helmets have these stripes. And so I ended up at the end of that day looking like a tiger. I, I had these, but let's <laughs> let's just ignore that. So I squeezed this really this, and this is probably the only time I ever used these gel pouches. But I could fit a lot of it in my back, right, com compared to other things. So how come it didn't make me feel better or did I not wait long enough for, for it to make me feel better? This gel pouch of, I think, was pure sugar. Well, you may have been, you, you know, at a certain point, it's like my house was on fire. I poured a bucket of water on it. Okay. How come the fire didn't go out? And, you know, I thought water put fire out. So there's two answers to that question. One is that if you put that gel in your mouth, you should immediately get some benefit. Not an, You're not going to feel wonderful. But in fact, you have sensors in your mouth that can detect that fuel is on the way. And so if you do fairly carefully, very carefully controlled double-blinded trials, you'll find that as soon as someone gets carbohydrate in their mouth, their performance will increase a little bit marginally. The amount that matters mm. if you're an Olympic athlete, not the amount that matters if you're just trying to stop feeling terrible. It takes a lot longer for the fuel to actually reach your muscles. Let's say could be 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Depends on, on a lot of factors about what's going on in your stomach. But that's still a, a very small amount of carbohydrate. 
So if you want to keep up with the rate at which you're burning fuel going up a mountain, hmm. you want to be taking something like 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate an hour, which is, it, it depends on the gel, but we're talking, you know, three or four gels every hour. And that's actually, that's not just a logistical challenge of trying to get the, you know, tear the gel open with one Head hand. a gel pack aiming into But it's also if you- While climbing. <laughs> even if you succeed at that, you're going to discover that your stomach is going to rebel after after an hour or two of that. It's it, it, it not like mainlining sugar for hours on end while also exercising. The way that I got out of that mess is A, I had to finish the climb, but it ended up costing me time and energy wise a hell of a lot longer than we had, my, my mate and I, had budgeted in your head, right? I'm going to budget this amount of, of, of time. It, it just took way longer. But what happened was, so, so this particular climb, this was up the telegraph. Okay, so telegraph, there's a little dip and then you go up the Galibier. And the entire climb is 30 miles long. Okay, so it's up for 30 miles bar a, a, a two-mile dip into Valois. And so we went into Valois where there was a, a, a free stop. Uh, but then before the stop, there was a there was an enterprising lady selling paninis. I didn't think that I would be stopping for a can of Coke and a panini. But boy, we stopped for a can of Coke and a panini, 15 minutes or something like that. And that was when I felt better. And then, so I had to stop. I had to actually eat something eaty, like, like food, <laughs> in order to actually feel better. And I, it was only after that that I felt better. Well, I, I will say I have cycled up Telegraph and Gilly B. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I stopped at tele, the top of Telegraph and went into, a, if I remember correctly, went into a little bar there and had, even though it was like 11 in the morning, I had a piece of pie and and and, uh, and some tea and then by the time I got up to Galibier it was snowing <laughs> and I was freezing and on the far side of that pass there's another little sort of bar that used to be a hotel too but there's no longer a hotel so I was so cold when I got there they went in they got the the dressing gowns that they the bathrobes that they yeah. used to give to to people who stayed in the hotel and they let me wrap one around myself and I had like a pizza and a a crepe and and several other things. So, because I, I was I was on an early spring day, so it was it was cold rather than hot. But uh, yeah, I definitely needed a lot of refueling and not just what you get from a gel to to, to get up that that mountain. So it, it was since that and and this it then fascinated me. So this was before I was teaching medical students, and this whole story came back to me when I then began to teach um, students and looking at the myths. And one of the myths of exercise and macros, particularly carbohydrates and fat. And why we carbo-load is that we burn all the... This is a myth. I think this is a myth. You burn all the carbohydrates. Then after you finish all the carbohydrates, then you burn all the fat. This is, as far as I understand, from what you just told me, a myth. Yeah, you're, you're always burning as much fat as you can. I mean, that's the, the best fuel source there is. It's just that when you're going hard, fat can't give you everything you need. And so you're supplementing that with carbohydrates. And if you're going really hard, that supplementation is most of your calorie burn. And and even with carbohydrates, again, it's not like the fuel tank goes completely empty. It, I mean, it, it's extraordinarily complex. Let's say you're halfway through your carbohydrate stores, your muscles start to contract less efficiently. Like the, the presence of carbohydrate in the muscle affects how the muscle... So there's all these feedback mechanisms that are trying to prevent you from reaching that catastrophic point where you actually do run out of fuel. So you feel like you're running out of fuel long before your gas tank is empty. So these, this is what happens inside and you're trying to break things down is what you should be fueling with for exercise. And I appreciate it depends on what kind of exercise you're doing, but just in general. Say you are on keto for some reason. It could, it could be for a legitimate reason. You got type 2 diabetes. You're trying to control your glucose. There's any number of different, different reasons that, that, that are up there. Can you be low carb and fuel effectively 
for endurance exercise. Let's, let's, let's go with that. Um, is it a wise thing to do? You're dropping me right into the middle of the, the most the, the most heated debate in oh I'm sorry <laughs> uh, sports nutrition but let me let me if you'd asked me this question ten years ago I would have said no don't don't be silly Jaws don't 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 waste mm. my time with your foolish questions um, I mean I might have said it more politely than that but uh, I, I would have thought it is not possible to run uh, let's say a marathon a, a sustained endurance event at a reasonable level relative to your own abilities without properly fueling with carbs I. In the face of evidence of, of of evidence to the contrary, I now have a different opinion. It is possible to run uh, a, a marathon per, quite well on, on a ketogenic diet with with virtually no carbohydrates. Um, the key thing that happens is your body responds and adapts to the habitual way you feed it. So if you, over the course of months or years, eat a low carbohydrate diet, what happens? is the rate at which you can burn fat increases dramatically. You know, let's say it triples or something like that. Your body becomes much faster at burning carbon, as we said before. Is this, is this what is known as metabolic flexibility? Well, metabolic flexibility means you can use fat or carbs depending on the situation and what's available. The reason you can't run a marathon just on fat for the most part is you can't burn fat fast enough. Mm. And then the, the counter argument is, well, if you eat nothing but fat or virtually nothing but fat for several years, you get faster at burning fat. And that is true. And so there, there's, there's lots of people who have run perfectly reasonable marathons on ketogenic diets and, and beyond. Does it make you better at running a marathon because of this logical... Uh, you, the, there's this very tempting story that's like, we have infinite stores of fat. If you just unlock your fat stores by eating a ketogenic diet, you will never run out of fuel again. In fact, you'll never have to eat again. It's, it's just it's a miracle. <laughs> there's no evidence. that you, If you go to the Olympics... And survey every endurance athlete there. You might find one or two who eat a ketogenic diet, but for the, the nobody who performs, almost nobody who performs at a very high level does this because carbohydrates are a very powerful and useful fuel. You want to have what, you, as you said, metabolic flexibility. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to burn fat at a rapid rate, which is something that happens with endurance training as well. You, you don't eating a low carb diet is not the only way of enhancing fat burning, but you also want to have carbohydrate. So the, the nice thing about the, the ketogenic diet idea is if you're relying on your fat stores, it takes away the imperative of mainlining sports gels. You're saying, I don't need to, to keep taking those mm. nauseating gels because the fuel I'm getting is from within. And if you're doing an ultra endurance event, let's say you're doing an Ironman triathlon yeah. or something like that, or cycling up Col de Galibier or whatever. Well, especially if you're running, for runners in particular, because they're bouncing mm -hmm. up and down, it becomes very difficult to eat as many calories as you need. Yes. Not because you can't do math and don't know how many calories you need, but because your stomach does not like in inhaling all, either all gels or real food and then bouncing around. And so the, probably the most ardent proponents of the ketogenic approach are ultra endurance athletes, in particular ultra runners, because they say it, it just, it means I don't have to eat as much during the race and I hate eating during the race. You can't run a study that, that shows, no, you're wrong. You don't feel better doing this because if people feel better doing it, they feel better doing it. And so, and so that's great, but it, yeah. that's different than saying you will run faster because you have the, a magic fuel supply. That the, the metabolic argument is harder to make. Again, I would have totally dismissed this idea ten years ago, and, and that's that's a, a great example of science changing as a result of, of new ideas. Now, how about sources? So, so moving away from, from from keto. So these are now we're talking about macros here to sources of protein. Now, in particular, there are a lot of 
athletes. Now, some surprising ones, such as American football players, others that are going to be more endurance, Lewis Hamilton, famously, who have become vegan or primarily plant-based, actually. So what is your understanding about the importance of the source of proteins that you are that that you are actually consuming. This assumes that you can have you can do it safely and properly. Okay, I, that I appreciate. But the source of animal protein versus plant protein. Yeah, I mean, look. So we're gonna we're gonna ignore the larger context of you know environmental arguments and ethical arguments. And there there yes. there are th this is a, a very complex debate too, which is hard to take in isolation. But mm. in terms of from an athletic performance perspective, my understanding is that protein quality does matter. There are different amino acids. And in particular, there's an amino acid called leucine, mm -hmm. which seems to be one of the primary triggers of muscle repair and growth. And so first of all, you need to have sufficient amino acids. You need all the amino acids to build, to build muscle. And I'm thankful that this is, this is audio and not video so that people wouldn't see how, how little muscle I actually have. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't take what I say seriously. But yeah, the, the, the research says, says you need leucine. And some types of protein have more leucine than others. And so, for example, dairy protein seems to be particularly good at stimulating your muscles to repair after a workout and to grow. Mm. That does not in any way mean that you can't get the same effects with other sources of protein, including plant-based. Mm. The arguments that plant-based protein is better, that it's, let's say it reduces inflammation and that this blah, blah, blah. You know, it's very easy to construct bioplausible arguments, as a friend of mine calls it. Bioplausible. Yeah, that, you know, you can find a mechanism and you can find a study in mice that suggests that, look, when this mice had less inflammation, he, he, he climbed up the wall or did wheel, you know, wheel running more than than without it. Therefore, we all need to eat this brand of uh, food. Um, in terms of actual demonstrations of this in the real world with humans, I I'm not aware of any. So I'm all I'm, I'm highly supportive of anyone who, who eats a, a plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. But in the same way that I'm skeptical of all claims without reasonable evidence, I don't see any reason to think it's athletically superior. And in fact, I, I, I wouldn't go to the other extreme and say, oh, no, you know, if, you, if you're a vegetarian, you, you can't build muscle. Y you can. Absolutely, you can. And maybe it takes a little bit more um, thinking about it, and and just yeah, make sure you yeah. get the right proteins. A and attention things, right? and mm. exactly, it takes a little bit of planning, but um, that, you know this is not an insurmountable obstacle. So to me, protein is protein for the most part, and the differences are marginal as long as you're making sure you're getting good and varied sources. Now, my 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 son, who is scarily or not now nearly twenty years old, I know don't I don't even look at me like that. Don't look at me like that. So so he he's hardly a weightlifter but you know he, he gets into some exercise um he's got some dumbbells in the room and his friend tells me because he's doing these dumbbells dude you have to um you have to have protein supplements you have to have protein supplements he said this his dad can you can i get some protein supplements i said i cook you a healthy well-balanced meal young man you're not arnold schwarzenegger you should be able to get everything you need from your food as long as your food is is is, is healthy am i being a good father <laughs> I think you're being a good father in, in promoting a good, healthy relationship with food. In terms of whether protein supplementation is necessary for maximizing muscle growth, mm. I don't think it's necessary, mm. but it can be helpful because the reality is most people in Western societies get enough protein throughout the day, but they don't necessarily balance it throughout the day. They tend to eat the vast majority of their protein at dinner. So they might get 100 plus grams of protein in a day, but 80 of them are in a lump of meat at dinner, and they don't have a ton ah. during at breakfast or at lunch. So the recommendation for athletes is 
not just how much protein you get, but you want to space it throughout the day. You want between four and six meals and or snacks that have between, let's say, 30 and 40 grams of protein, which is like a can of tuna and, and some milk. You want that. You want to have protein close to bed. You want to have protein when you wake up because it's the combination of resistance exercise and the presence of these amino acids from protein that maximizes the growth of muscle. Okay. <laughs> So I have to take a. I'll have to revisit this. Uh, so this, this discussion. that doesn't mean you have to give powders, but it might mean are you know are you having eggs for breakfast or something mm. like that? Are you having something that has sufficient protein at lunch? Are you just having bread and peanut butter, or are you having you know a can of tuna or or whatever the case may be that's going to get a good like at least twenty grams of protein in? And so I will say from my personal experience, again, I, I you know I'm, I'm built like I was sort of twisted together from pipe cleaners, and and <laughs> which I, is why I'm you're aware, a Mila. I want to point out <laughs> it is, but I'm also aware that you know 15 years from now I want to be able to get up out of a chair without you know having someone having to use a forklift on me, and so I want to make sure that I have sufficient muscle to age healthily, and so I'm taking my resistance exercise seriously, and I've also I've started using protein powder, just pure, just straight unsweetened protein powder. A few times a week after I do my strength training, not because I can't get the protein from other foods, mm. but just because sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm busy and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to have a bowl of cereal. And it's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm getting 10 grams of protein, but uh, I probably would do better with 25 to 30. So just to make sure I'm maxing out my strength training, I'm, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm very supplement skeptical. And this is definitely not one you need. But it's something that logistically can be helpful, which is the, the, the tr true about a lot of sports nutrition products. It's like you don't need to buy sports nutrition products, mm. but sometimes they may help you do something that you might be too lazy to do otherwise. That, that is a wonderfully nuanced answer. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So now I'm going to switch gears and discuss with you exercise for the sake of losing weight <clears throat> versus or and exercise for the sake of being healthy. Okay, so what is your understanding and your stance of, um, of exercise for those different reasons? 
This is another great question. And I, I will I will say that people should think about exercise as a way of being healthy mm. in an infinite number of ways, you know, uh, cognitively healthy, uh, you know, great longevity, happy, good so, mood. Someone told me that someone told me that you could, if you could have, you can't, by the way, please, if you could have exercise in a pill, that's the pill to take because, you, but it can't, you, you can never replicate the goodness of exercise in, 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 in a the, pill. If, I, I read a paper once about this idea and it's like, okay, we're going to list all the systems of the body that are improved by exercise. And it's like the, the, the paper's like seven pages long because it's, it's like there's no drug that could have that many positive effects. So exercise is super important for health. And it's also clear that let's say you're overweight. If you're overweight, mm. but you exercise regularly, you have a much better health outcome than if you're thin, but you don't. It's it, like exercise is important independent of weight. Now, Sometimes people still want to, you know, you can you can give that speech or that sermon as much as you want, and sometimes people, are like, yeah, but I still want to lose weight, uh, which is which is not a terrible thing, like because you know mm -hmm. uh, it it can be useful sometimes for some people to lose weight. And this is the the scientific consensus. I would say is that exercise is not a useful way of losing weight. I will say personally that I disagree with the scientific consensus. I think it depends how you ask the question and what specifically you're saying. Uh, I think. One question is, how, well, how much exercise are you talking? Because if you say, yes. please walk around the block for 20 minutes a day, and then someone does that for six months and says, I didn't lose weight. It's like, yeah, okay. But I'll say, C come out and train with my with my marathon training group. And you'll you, you'll see, first of all, yeah, there's self-selection, obviously. But what you see among longtime runners, people who do a high volume of exercise, is that if they get hurt if or if they you know get busy at work and stop training, they rapidly start putting on weight. Uh, maybe not rapidly, but they, you know, there is a connection between how much you exercise at a high level and how much you weigh. And there's also a lot of research showing that exercise helps improve the match between appetite and energy needs. So people who are physically active, how much they eat is linked to how much energy they're burning. Whereas people who are totally sedentary, it becomes totally decoupled. So their appetite no longer tells them to stop. So in a sense, I think that maybe is not so much about losing weight, but about maintaining a healthy weight. Mm. Being physically active is crucial to help make sure that your appetite mechanism is giving you the right signals. So the, the problem which I find with exercise is it makes me hungry. Like, okay, like once you said, not not walking around the block, but, you know, if you go out for 30, 40 miles on a bike or run a few, I come back, I'm hungry. So so using it for me as a weight loss tool has always been, I like to keep active and, and I use it to try and help, but I can't lose weight on, on just an exercise because it makes me hungry. Yeah. I, and the, you obviously, of all people, understand the, the complex role of the brain in dictating appetite. And there is definitely a... a a response, if you, especially if you start exercising or if you're increasing your amount of exercise where you'll mm. compensate by, by eating more. Over a long period of time, your body and your brain will habituate to a level of exercise and there'll be less overcompensation. Losing weight, I agree, is a, it's, it's a situational thing. It, it, it's, not, it's generally not a reliable way of losing large amounts of weight unless you're also paying attention to your diet. Not necessarily in the sense of counting calories, but in the sense of eating a healthy diet, focusing on, uh, you know, foods like fruits and vegetables that uh, fill you up without giving you a ton of dinner that aren't super calorie dense and things like that. So, I, I mean, I, I'm, it's definitely clear that just starting exercise is not a reliable or guaranteed way of losing weight, but I think it's an absolutely essential uh, part of being healthy. And I think it can be a part of a plan to maintain a healthy weight. If you look at people in the in the US National Weight Loss Registry, people who've lost a large amount of weight and kept it off for, for years, this is just an observational 
registry, mm. you find that the people who keep off weight, virtually all of them are including exercise in uh, at a fairly high level of exercise as a way of keeping the weight off, sustaining their gains. So again, even if it doesn't make them lose the weight, uh, very few people can sustain weight loss if they're not also physically active. So uh, you, you mentioned calorie counting or not not calorie counting. A couple of things, I guess, when you're refueling, so you've done exercise, for example, you've done a big you've done a big block of, of, of work and you have burnt X calories based on your little Garmin-y, you know, Apple Watchy thing, or or whatever it is. I mean, what is your view on how to make sure you refuel? properly, effectively? Uh, is it down to calories? Or, or, or do you have something more sophisticated in, in, in how you do it? Yeah, if anything, it's it's less sophisticated for me. I, oh. I, I eat till I'm hungry, or till I'm not hungry anymore. That's um, good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it does require being aware of what, what hunger feels like. I think there's a broader point that's important to make here, which is mm. that there's a lot of, I mean, there's a whole huge multi-billion dollar industry of sports nutrition industry. And and there's a lot of science that goes into it, trying to understand exactly what athletes should do in order to get a slight edge on their competitors. And they come up with a lot of insights, uh, most of which are completely irrelevant or inapplicable to 99.9% of the population. So, for example, when I was competing seriously as a middle distance runner, I was training so hard that it was a a job to try and eat, a, a constant effort to try and eat every meal I ate until my stomach started to feel uncomfortable. And then I would be snacking in between because I needed to refuel from the inc incredible volumes of training that I was doing and repair my body and, and stay fueled and all these sorts of things. That is not a useful approach for the average <laughs> to, to live normal, normally. Yeah. No. And, it's not, and it's not a useful approach for me now as a, as a sort of casual recreational exerciser. And that goes to, you know, for all these things like, do you need a recovery bar? Do you need after workouts? Do you need to take sports drinks every time you leave the house, you know, with six bottles of fluids to avoid being dehydrated? It's like, th that matters if, if, if you're riding in the Tour de France. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. And it actually is counterproductive in most contexts for the, for the average person. So, the context is really important. So in terms of knowing how much to eat, the, there are examples of like in the Tour de France, the sports nutrition experts, you know, they have they have power meters on their bikes. Yeah. And so they know exactly how many calories they're burning. Because each each would it be personalized. They know what their rate of calorie burn is and, and, and all that stuff. Yeah. And they're calculating in advance for a given stage of the Tour de France. We're going to be going up this hill. This will require this many calories to get up this hill. We're going to give you this many gels. And these gels are pure sugar. So you know that exactly, you know, you're going to get 100% of the calories out of them. Mm. E even then, I'm skeptical as to whether they can really match calorie demand and supply that accurately, but they're trying. For most of us, man, we're not even close. We have no idea how much we're eating. We have no idea about the caloric availability of the foods we're eating. Mm -hmm. We have no idea exactly, you know, just because your treadmill tells you you burned 87 calories, that's like 87 plus or minus, you know, a chocolate bar or whatever, because it, 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 there's just so many uncertainties that trying to micromanage the calories to me is a has always seemed like a, a losing battle. So you have to find other ways and really like you try relying on your hunger, and if you're gaining weight, then you have to recalibrate what feels yeah. like hunger and what I mean, you're eating and how much you're eating. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's not and that, that's not to say that's not to make it sound just because it sounds simple doesn't mean it is simple. It's, no, it's, it is it's, not. It's it's, it's it's complicated, but the false assurance of like oh well, I read the calorie label and I and I looked at my watch and therefore I know this must be right. That's just a fool's fool's path. So, um, how have you eaten and cooked? 
through lockdown? Have you, I guess my question is, have you eaten better? Have you eaten worse through this period of lockdown, through the pandemic year? Yeah, there, there's a mix of both. I've, uh, w- my family and I have had fun cooking more elaborate meals. My, my older daughter is seven now, and, and so she's really discovering. She, she, she's finally learned to read enough to read a cookbook. And so she's been excited to, you know, we'll be about to eat meals. And she's, oh, I've just found this recipe. Let's make this vegetarian chili. And I'm like, we need to eat in five minutes, not in two hours. But so so we've we've enjoyed food. We've planted our backyard with all sorts of berries and vegetables. And we're eating lots of fresh things. We're foraging, paying attention to what we eat. And that's great. The the flip side or the the, the dark side is that it's been a stressful time. And I have never eaten more junk food before bed, sweet things, or through the afternoon, working from home. I mean, I always work from home, but now everyone's working from home. And it's like, exactly, it's, it's very stressful. And I, I, I need to get up and stretch my legs. And I always stretch my legs in the direction of the fridge or the cupboard. And, and our fridge <laughs> broke recently, and, and we got a new one. And there is a chime on it that you can't turn off. Every time you open the fridge door, it goes, doo-doo-doo. So now I can't even sneak to the fridge and, and get a snack without everyone without knowing. Without your wife going, Alex? Yeah. Or my kids, uh, can I have some? What are you having? Can I have what you're having? It's like, uh, I'm having broccoli. That's it. But yeah, so it's been it's been a chance to, to savor and appreciate because we have a little more time to, to savor and appreciate what we eat. But it's also because of the stress, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, I've found myself munching on stuff that, that I don't think is doing me any favors. Alex, thank you for chewing the fat with me. Thanks so much, Giles, and so amazing to reconnect with you. Alex mentioned the complex role of the brain in regulating appetite. If you want to know more about how the brain affects what we eat, there is an episode with psychologist Kimberly Wilson for you to go back and listen to. And while you're here, make sure you've subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Alex also touched on why counting calories might not be the best way of losing weight. If you want to know more about that, I've written a book. It's called, wait for it, Why Calories Don't Count. There are links in the show notes to the hard copy and the audiobook. Next time, I'm chewing the fat with Alana and Lisa McFarlane, aka The Gut Stuff. We always thought of diet and nutrition as something that we did two weeks before we went on holiday. And we very much thought of it as the outside in rather than the inside out. And I think it completely changed the way we even thought about the word diet and thought about our health and started thinking about our health in a preventative way. Thank you again to Alex Hutchinson and to my producer Anushka Tate for Orion Publishing Limited. And the biggest thank you goes to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.